Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. An American-born Ukrainian named Lydia reached out to me in December. She said, I love the concept of this podcast. Our memories are so tied up with food. I found my entire family in a Ukrainian village. When I turned around, there on the table were the same foods I had grown up eating. I was immediately intrigued. And as I heard Lydia's beautiful story centered around Vereniki, otherwise known as pierogies, I learned why she is so very proud to call herself Pyodor's granddaughter and how proud he would be of her. I'm going to give you a minute to grab a tissue, I cried, and also to hit that subscribe button. And now, Lydia. You're in North Carolina? Yes, and we're having this dreary, rainy, cold. It actually looks like Ukraine right now. (laughs) (laughs) So you're in the mood for this conversation. Yes, I am, and I am (laughs) thrilled to get to do it. I'm so grateful. And I am absolutely thrilled to have you. So first of all, Lydia, I cannot begin to pronounce the name of this dish. Well, it depends on what region you're from. Oh, so (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I can do it from any region. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. When I was growing up, we called them padogies. So when I went over there, and I'm eating Vereniki. I'm like, well, this looks like padogis to me. But that's because of Russia's influence. So, you know, before okay. 1991, everybody spoke Russian. The only place you spoke Ukrainian was in the schools. So everybody on the street in big cities now are calling it Vereniki. So that's how I got started calling it Vereniki because of when I lived there. Okay, so Vereniki is Russian for that's a Russian pierogi. Word, yes, yes. I. Okay, well, let's talk about these pierogies. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have fun making them? I had fun making them, and I had more fun eating them because <laughs> yes. every one of my favorite foods is in here. So, first of all, mashed potatoes. If I had to pick one comfort food to eat every single day of my life, it would be mashed potatoes. Mm -hmm. Secondly, caramelized onions is the food of the gods. We can just agree on that. Yes. Amen. So the fact that those are in the pierogies and on top of the pierogies Mm -hmm. and then the sour cream and dill is a a match made in heaven. It is. How would you describe the dish? Well, heaven on a plate. Mm. I mean, it is everything (laughs) I mean, first of all, I could eat sour cream by itself. I have Ukrainian blood through and through. So when you add the potatoes and sharp cheese, and mm. you know, in Ukraine, I don't think they use a sharp cheese. It's more of a like yes. a farmer's cheese. That's kind of our little American twist that mm-hmm. I don't know who started that. It must have been my grandmother. Mm-hmm. But we can thank her. <laughs> yes, we can. Aren't they delicious? They are so good. I mean, there's butter at every stage. They're so They good. are. And mm. in Ukraine, it's not traditional to fry them in butter after like oh, they're, okay. they're steamed, you know, like a yeah. dumpling would be. But somebody in my family started frying them up and I bet it was my grandmother. My grandfather died um, when my father was four years old and he was one of seven 
she made pierogi every Friday mm. and they would get whole ones on Friday, which also, by the way, like Dora was a meatless Friday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were Orthodox, okay. but so they get whole ones on Friday, the seven kids. So they could have two or three of the whole ones, but the next day they could have two or three uh, cut in half. I think that you have three incredibly strong ties to Ukraine. And the first is you've mentioned a family history. Mm -hmm. Um, The second is that you have lived and worked in Ukraine. That's correct. Uh Okay. And then the third is that you have adopted children from Ukraine. Yes. Two of my four children are Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, the other two are half Ukrainian. (laughs) So let's start with um, your Ukrainian father. Yes, my my father was uh, born here in the States in Pennsylvania to uh, two Ukrainian immigrants. Okay. And he was um, number six of seven. So this was your grandparents then. Um, Did they meet in Ukraine or did they meet in the U.S.? They actually met in the U.S. My grandfather... Uh, left the village in 1914, right before the revolution, with many other boys from his village. Okay, so give me a little bit of history on the revolution. Well, really the time period that Ukrainians, they became these like little brother, Mm -hmm. or seen as the little brother of Russia, Mm-hmm. And they've been fighting for their Ukrainian identity for all of these years and continue to do so today. You've probably seen a lot about that in the news. <laughs> yeah, right. Institutionally, Suppressed. they became yes. yeah Russian institutions. But of course, as people, mm-hmm. they maintained their identity. Yes. Mm. yes. Now, Especially in villages. Some of the villages never spoke Ukrainian. Uh, Russian. I see. Okay. And then how about your grandmother? How did she, what was the story of her coming from Ukraine to the U.S.? My grandmother was 12 and moved, uh, immigrated with her family to Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania, which is a coal mining town. Okay. And that is where they met. Mm. Your grandfather was a coal miner? Yes, he was. And I don't know if you know a whole lot about coal mining at that time, particularly, but you were kind of owned by the company. So my grandfather died of black lung when he, Mm. when my father was four and his youngest brother Mm. was two, my uncle Phil. Mm. What would working conditions have been like for your grandfather? I can't imagine. I just can't imagine my, you know, taken on a train car by a donkey down into the depths of this and hammering constantly. You're breathing this black coal Mm. um, constantly. And my dad would say they were coal crackers because they would then crack the coal. They'd get the coal up out of the mine and my dad would crack it into pieces. And so Mm. his only recollections of his dad were being in the bathroom with him and my grandfather coughing Mm. And coughing up coal and blood from the black lung. Mm. So it was just really it's devastating. Mm. And so. obviously your grandmother could see as she had child after child after down to seven. She must have seen your grandfather getting sicker and sicker and really knowing where this was going to lead. Yes. And likely there's a story actually 
published in the paper there many, many, many years ago of a, there was a flood in a coal mine and my grandfather ended up saving seven people. And so it's always been my held belief that that's part of what his demise was, is, you know, that that made it even that much worse. Mm. Nearby there, there's still a town called Centralia, that there's a mine still burning. What? Yes, there is a mine still burning. And if you go near Centralia, you have this particular smell in the area. You can still smell it burning. I don't know. I just, it's so interesting to me. And, you know, this is all row houses in Pennsylvania where they immigrated to. And the interesting thing is many of those people that my grandfather immigrated with their children and my dad and his siblings all grew up together. So it's almost like the village was replaced from Ukraine to Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania. They called them hunkies. In Pennsylvania, the first Eastern European immigrants to this area were Hungarian. Really? And so, so because they were the first, they called them hunkies. Hmm. And so it was kind of a, a little bit of maybe a derogatory or slang mm-hmm. term, but hmm. until my dad would say, yeah, we're hunkies and proud of it, <laughs> you know? Okay. Now, tell me, do you have early memories of Vereniki? Oh, okay. yes. I have very early memories of eating Vereniki. It was so much fun because my mom would make them and I would watch. I wasn't much to be in the kitchen, but I remember once in a while she'd give me a piece of dough to just mess around with, which I'm Uh so glad now because now I know what the dough was supposed to feel like in order to make it, you know, Mm -hmm. not too Mm -hmm. sticky, not too doughy, you know. Yep. Just right. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yeah. Okay. And so do you, um, well, and do you remember making them with your grandmother as well? No, my grandmother, unfortunately, my grandmother died when I was in eighth grade and she had had a stroke many years before that. So what the only memory I have of my grandmother was really her in her bed at my aunt's house. And I remember us kids running through and seeing her and she would cry, you know, tears would roll down her face, even though she Mm. couldn't speak. Mm. But yeah, it was really sad. I never got to know either one of them makes me so sad and has been kind of a driving force in my life. Mm. I always felt very much like I identified with my grandfather and what it took for him to come here and the sacrifices that he made for us as a family that he didn't know we would be, Mm. you know, so. Mm. And you're just so (laughs) mindful as you go through your life that without his sacrifice day after day in the coal mines, you wouldn't be where you are. I keep a piece of coal on my windowsill in front of my sink in the kitchen because I never want to forget where we came from and what he sacrificed for us. Mm. On the positive and the negative, both what you have here and what your family escaped, so to speak, what the people who stayed in Ukraine have suffered. Yes, Mm. absolutely. And interestingly enough, my oldest adopted son is from the coal mining area of Ukraine. And that's the area that is at war right now with Russia. I didn't know that. Okay. All right. Well, let's continue with the history and then we'll come back to the Vernikian a little bit because this is, I feel like that's where this is really going. So in terms of this, you know, you said this, um, 
respect and gratitude that you mm-hmm. have for your grandfather and your desire to really honor him mm-hmm. um, with your life has been a driving force. So is that part of why you returned, well, why you went to Ukraine to live and to work? It's actually even a higher reason. I um, okay. I was okay. living here in Hickory as an adult, went on a blind date with a guy who ended up taking me to Young Life Club to see his <laughs> friends doing the crazy music and skits. And then at the end, they have a message about Jesus. So this leader, I got to, I started volunteering and he wouldn't let me do anything but turn the transparencies. And I was like, why can't I get up there and lead music? Why can't I get up there and do skits? And he goes, well, let me ask you a question. Um, what's your favorite Bible verse? And I said, God helps those who helps themselves. <laughs> And he goes, well, that's funny. And he hands me a Bible and he goes, show me where that is. And so I'm sweating, literally going, I can't find it. I can't find it. You know, it's a big book. Yeah. (laughs) After about five minutes of me sweating, he goes, let me just help you out. It's not in there because it's not true. He helps those who can't help themselves. And so, and then he, he very simply told me about who Jesus was and what he had done for me. And I began a relationship with him. Mm. And so that that was really changed everything for you. That changed everything for me. That changed everything. And so then as I was going to another church and this man, Terry Taylor brings a seven minute video called the red door. Hmm. And it was about this ministry that was at, 80 different Christian education organizations because Mm. the minister of education in Russia said, we want you to bring the Jesus film. This is after the walls come down and, and they knew that they needed to fill a vacuum that had been left. When you say the vacuum that was left, you're referring to, I I feel like, yeah, I feel like I've had this string of guests who lived under communism. And the one thing they have said over and over and over was that atheism was not just supported, but actually enforced. Atheism was enforced in communist countries. And if I can ask, actually, after, um, I don't know if you heard back to Daniela's interview. Um, She came from the Czech Republic. Actually, several people reached out to me and said, how how could you force someone to believe something? Okay. So for example, 1932-33 in Ukraine, Stalin was taking all the foods away from Ukrainian people. Mm. If they didn't sign up for the collective farming If they didn't agree, they were shipped off to Siberia or shot on the spot. Mm. And so then in 1932 and 33 in Ukraine is what we call Holodomor, which means forced starvation by hunger. Mm. And Becky, there's so many people who know so much about the Holocaust of Jewish people, but no one in the States has ever heard of this. And we're talking, there are estimates of seven to 10 million Ukrainians were starved to death. It's unbelievable. So you either bought into it or you died. And so the people who bought into it didn't want to do so, but they were trying to stay alive. And so that's part of it. And then as my time in Ukraine, when I was there, you would notice that if there were six doors going into a metro station that should work, only one of them 
would actually open. And so you've got people like cattle. It was this oppression. You have to go in the same door. People are trying to come out. You're saying that all the doors worked. This was on purpose. It was just an oppression that the government actually did to them. And they also... Mm. Communism took over the churches. You know, they closed the churches and they had people who had been in churches. They're spying on one another and they're ratting people out. And you can't blame them in a sense. They were all trying to survive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they did Mm -hmm. whatever they had to to take care of their families. Mm -hmm. I I mean, in a way, everything's about education, I suppose. And if you if the churches are where you're educated um, and your faith and clearly the churches were a huge part of Ukrainian culture because even when your father was here, right, where did he go to learn about culture? He went to the church. Exactly. So if the churches were shut down back in Ukraine, then -hmm. where were they learning really any of this? And so, and so that's where you, when this opportunity opened up for you to Mm -hmm. go and kind of reteach these things that had been removed from the culture, you wanted to go do that. Yes, that's exactly. Mm-hmm. And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, when I signed up with the commission, I had I had no power to choose where I was going. But I was chosen to go to Ukraine, mm-hmm. which I just I still think about that and go God's hand was on this entire story of mm-hmm. me being able to find my whole family in Ukraine and okay. that I got to establish something that I think would have honored not just God, but honored my family and my family's history. Hmm. So did you say that you got to meet your family? Yeah, I did. Really? I did. So I moved there in the summer of 93. And um, we were working in schools and showing this film. Is that what you were doing? Showing the Jesus film and teaching Mm -hmm. teachers. So we weren't teaching children. The at that time, If you were a kindergartner or really a first grader in Ukraine, you went with a teacher and that was your teacher for the rest of your schooling. So, yeah, so from first grade to 12th, you had the same teacher. So if you impact a teacher Mm. and then she's impacting the students. So we went there to teach the teachers with. Okay. And these were public school teachers and no government was objecting to this. That's right. My first Our first foray there into asking uh, one of the school directors if we were allowed to teach this in her school was very scary. And we sat down and we told her we are here to, we'd like to help you learn historic Christianity. Mm. And she was very stern. And she said, you wait here. It was uh, my teammate and I and our interpreter. And I thought, oh, my heavens, we're in big trouble. We're, gonna, we're mm-hmm. going to Siberia. I mean, I was started biting my nails. And mm. she came in with five or six other school directors. She sat them down and she said, you people, I want you to listen to these little girls, she called us, because, <laughs> because they are going to help us to fight all the bad things that are coming into our country. <gasps> Really? And so I didn't know that she was the director for the region. And so these were directors from all the schools that we worked in for the rest of the year. Okay. So and by, by bad things, she didn't mean communism because that was. No. She, at, well, it was more like there were lots of weird little cults coming in trying to take uh, over. And then they were scaring people saying they were going to 
poison the water because of 144,000 children needed to go to heaven or some weird things like that, which, oh, so okay. that's, there was some things that were going on, especially in uh, Kiev at that time that I she see. was specifically referring to. I see. Okay. But anyway, so I was busy, 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 busy. But what I did do was there was a newspaper that went all over Ukraine and I put an ad that said, if anyone knows anything about the family, Pyotr Kundis, Kundis is my maiden name, K-U-N-D-I-S. Mm -hmm. um, and my grandfather's name was Pyotr, Peter. Um, mm -hmm. Then would you please contact me at this phone number? And I got nothing back. And it, that mm -hmm. paper went all over Ukraine. And then I actually hired someone who was, it had been their job to reunite people after the war. Mm -hmm. And, um, wow, this person couldn't find anything. My uncle who had been in the military had been there and couldn't find anything. And so my dad had told me that we were from Kamenets Podolsk and he gave me these pictures and many of them were people we had no clue who they were. And I went on a train, my team leader kindly said he and his wife would go with me because they did not want me going anywhere by myself. I did have a Ukrainian interpreter, okay. and it was a long 13-hour train ride overnight. We got down to Kamenets Podolsk, and this is where this gets totally crazy, Becky. Okay. So <laughs> we, get, we get off of the train, and we go to this hotel. We, I go to the front desk and I say, do you have a phone book? She hands me a phone book and I'm looking for my last name. Bingo. There it is in the phone book. So I say, where is this to this lady? And she walks me outside and she points in an apartment building, not a stone's throw away. And my team leader, and he's looking at me going, I'm not sending you up to this place by yourself. I will go. You stay here. Mm. I will go with the interpreter. We'll knock on the door We'll bring whoever it is out. Okay, so it felt like an eternity from the time they left us standing outside. They come back, and this man is shaking, and he's white. <gasps> and he goes, okay, listen, I'm very distantly related to you, but the people you're really looking for live, and he gave some nebulous instructions. And were you so, unnerved by his reaction that he seemed oh, yes. so upset? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we're probably the first Americans this man's ever met. Okay. I mean, this was 1990. Well, by this time it was 94. But still, people knew we were Americans by our white tennis shoes mm. and our sunglasses and our chewing gum. And people knew. And we're loud, of course. You know how that is. <laughs> and so and one thing mm. I need to back up and say is that the reason Mm -hmm. that our family lost touch with the family in Ukraine and we couldn't find them mm -hmm. is because Stalin was killing people in Ukraine who was, who were sending letters to their family in America okay. because they would be telling the truth, you see, to the family and who had immigrated like my grandfather. And so that totally was cut off. I see. And so I see. Mm -hmm. So, we hire a Ukrainian driver and my team leader. And it's one of those little 
old Ukrainian mm-hmm. cars yeah. called a Lada. I mean, it's like a box, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And we are bouncing all over. We're leaving Kamenets Podolsk, and there's a, a really a beautiful old castle, and there's a river right mm-hmm. here that we're driving over. And I'll never forget this. The name of the river is called Smotrish, which means in Ukrainian, watch. Mm. And I remember thinking, is that God saying, watch me? And Mm. I just got teared up. Mm. And so we drive and drive and drive. And he turns off of the road, no sign, no nothing, onto a dirt road. And there's all these ruts in the road. Like several times we had to get out of the car. It was just too much. Later on, I realized it's from wagon wheels in this village. Wow. Wagon wheels. Yeah. And so back in time. Yes. It felt like 1920 or something. Mm. And so then we get in and we go past cemetery. So I'm taping this for my parents Mm. and I just go, yeah, I just passed Babushka Kandis's grave, you know, kind of joking. Yeah. Ha Mm. ha. There's probably all of our relatives buried in there being Mm. a fool. So Mm. we come up to this lady who's literally pushing a wheelbarrow out of what would have been in the old days, a collective farm, we stop and the driver gets out and he says, excuse me, we're looking for Kunda's family. And she goes, oh, the nest of them is blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, did I just misunderstand what she said or a nest? What is she talking about? Well, I was about to find out. So we drive some more and we see this old woman feeding her turkeys and ducks and chickens. And he gets out of the car. And in true Ukrainian style, they don't say, hey, excuse me, ma'am. They say, old woman. And so he (laughs) yells up to the old woman, hey, old woman, we're Uh looking for Kunda's family. Uh She comes down. She looks at him and she goes, I am Kunda's family. Who are you? So then I get out of the car. I said to her, we're looking for Piotr Kundis' family. Well, she starts crying and shaking. And she says, I am. Mm. <laughs> I can't even say it. I, I am. I am Piotr Kundis' family. Who are you? And so I take the picture of my grandparents with my five aunts and uncles. Mm. And I show it to her. And she names every one of them by their proper Ukrainian name. And she goes, who are you? (sighs) And I said, I'm his granddaughter. And I pointed at the picture and she starts sobbing. My Mm. team leader has to get out of the car to hold me up because the blood has literally drained from my body. These little kids come. She says something to them, which I don't understand. They scatter and she drags me in the house. And she's talking so fast and she's so old. It was just the sweetest thing. And so I had these pictures. So I'm like, and I'm asking her, okay, this, this picture here says pop's brother. So that would be my dad's writing dad's brother and his wife names unknown. And I'm like, who is this? Who is this? And she goes, Oh, that's Dimitri. Dimitri. That's your grandfather's next youngest brother. My grandfather was the oldest. And I'm like, okay, "Okay, who's the lady? And she goes, oh, that's me. And she points (gasps) behind me. She points behind me on the wall. And the same picture is hanging on the wall. 
Wow. And so my grandmother must have sent mm. it to her before. Mm. Yeah. Then it's just crazy from there. And all mm. these people start showing up and, and they knew immediately that I belonged yeah. to them. There was not a question at all. It gets even weirder. So mm. we, all these people are showing up and they're telling me how we're all related and all this. And I'm just totally overwhelmed. And they, they go, come on, we got to go somewhere. Thankfully there was a, guy my age, Victor, who ended up being kind of my guide, who took care of me and said, okay, we're going to do this in an organized fashion because it was just totally crazy. I'm saying to them the whole time, is there any of my grandfather's siblings still alive? Finally, we get the answer. Yes. Anya is still alive. So Mm -hmm. we wrap up, we go outside And we're walking this huge entourage of people down the village dirt street. People are running towards me. Are you Piotr's granddaughter? People are like coming out of the woodwork, yelling from their yards. And I felt like the Pied Piper. It was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. And there were people who were shoving pictures in my hand. So we get to this one place and their homes are just beautiful. And this man was so, so proud of himself. Beautiful Ukrainian shirt. Mm. He's Mm. fixing something and he's on a ladder. And my cousin, my age says, I've, I've brought you Piotr's granddaughter. Mm. And I'm standing there and tears are just coming down my face. And he goes, come on, let's go in. So he takes us in to his wife who um, is my dad's first cousin, Anya, is literally on her deathbed. And they say, no, you need to be careful how you do this because the shock of this could kill her. So I go into her room where there's just a bed and this woman. And I have another picture that has my great-grandfather, four of his sons, She sits up a little bit and I show her the picture and I say, do you know who these people are? And she says, that's my father and that's my brother and that's my brother Piotr and that's my brother. And she says, who are you? Mm. And I sobbing saying, Mm. I'm Piotr's granddaughter. Well, she starts sobbing and telling me the story of the day that he left the village and that his mother tied a bag of money around his neck and put his coat on. Mm-hmm. And that was the last time they ever saw him. They knew they'd never see him again. So, and the funny thing is, I look at this woman, and I always thought I had the most ugly hands. And I looked at her hands, and I'm like, those hands look exactly like mine. And so ever since then, I'm so happy to have my hands and so I go, uh, my stomach at this point is beyond upset. And so I'm like, excuse me for a minute. I have to go to the outhouse. I go to the outhouse. I come back and this woman is, she's literally hunched over, but standing in the doorway of her room. And she's pulling me in there and she goes, come. And I get in there and I see, uh-oh, little tiny table, bottle of homemade vodka and two (laughs) shot glasses. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I'm going to die. The the woman on her deathbed was going to drink you under the table. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
And so I'm just praying, Lord, please help me because this stuff could kill me. I mean, you know, it's homemade. So there's no telling. Oh, my. So she says, we will drink to our family. And I say, okay. So she pours it and I sip and she throws it back, of course. (laughs) And she goes, no, no, to the bottom. And I can't offend her by not drinking it. Oh, no. And I had to drink several shots. But do you know, I never once felt, it tasted like pure grain alcohol. I mean, it was like on fire in my mouth. But do you know, not once did I feel any inebriation from it. I was like, thank you, God. That that's a miracle. <laughs> I know. I know. And so the most beautiful part of this, when I turn around from this, I'm shaken. I'm totally shaken up. And they so I turn around from her room, and unbeknownst to me, the whole family has gathered in this room right behind me. And there's the Vereniki in the middle of the table. Oh, <laughs> That I have eaten all my life, mm. which sounds so stupid to be crying about Vereniki, but it's the history. It's yeah. these, you know, this is where these recipes came from. And there was borscht and halubsi, which is, you know, what we call stuffed cabbage and, and pompushki and rolls and poppy seed and, and Pascha Easter bread, because I came the week after Easter. In fact, it was the first Sunday that that church had been reopened in that village since my grandfather had, ugh, my wow. grandfather sang in that church. Wow. And I came the Sunday after it had been reopened the first time. Incredible. It really, really is. And the mm-hmm. heart of these people the heart. And I couldn't stay very many days. I mean, we had work, we had to go back to Kiev and they did not understand why were you leaving? You just came. And I said, I'll come back. I'll come back. We feasted and feasted and feasted. Ukrainian style Thanksgiving dinner is all of what I just mentioned and Mm. much more. Mm. And Mm. I got to call my father from Kamenets Podolsk uh, from a phone booth there and tell him and he does not an easy crier, and he really cried that I was able to, by God's grace alone, to find his mm. family. When I came home from Ukraine, I came home in August 94, and I started dating my husband and got married in March of 95, learned that Anya had died that January, and she had made me promise before I left that I would bring my family back, my dad mm. and his siblings My husband and I took my dad, my mom, my Aunt Jeannie, Yevgenia, and my Uncle Walt back to Ukraine to meet their family. Mm. We had a Ukrainian Thanksgiving meal Mm. in one day, seven times. And we were all going, (laughs) we can't eat anymore. But as a culture... They have to put it on the table whether you eat it or not. I So this Lydia is following us around going, how come my house isn't on the schedule? <laughs> and literally, she's following us from house to house going, you have to come. And so Victor looks at me, my cousin, and he goes, you got to go. Oh, and I'm like, well, we'll go. But tell her not to put any food on the table. I don't want her to waste it. Right. And so right. he's like, oh, no, that is not a thing. Oh, my goodness. We were sick. 
So I have to ask you a question right now, and there's a good chance we take this out. Okay. But, you know, you've adopted Ukrainian children. Yes. And as an adoptive mother. Yes. You know, as you experienced what it meant to meet people that you were biologically connected to. How does that influence your parenting of your adopted children? Yeah, it, it really has influenced me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I learned early in our adoption history mm-hmm. is that the day that we're all celebrating when we hit the American soil again, that's right. We're yeah. it's such a day of loss for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And keeping it alive for them is so important to me. When it came time to adopt, did you know for sure that you would adopt from Ukraine? Yes. Okay. Yes, we did. Especially the second time. Mm-hmm. And is there anything that you're comfortable sharing about those adoption processes? Yeah, yeah. that's that's up to you. Because, you know, there's a lot about my kid's story that I feel like is kind of theirs to tell. We took my five-year-old daughter, we took her with us and she, she would not come out from behind us until Mm. my son Alec walked Mm. in the room and they were friends right away. Yeah. They were friends right away. We knew immediately Mm. that he was our son and there was never a doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. When I went back uh, two years ago, we were actually packing trucks to go into the war zone, which, you know, that war started in 2014. And there's new widows and orphans all the time. And I remember packing a truck and I had been FaceTiming with my Ukrainian son from that area the night before. And he goes, Mom, what if you're packing food tomorrow into that truck and medical supplies to go in there. And my mom, my birth mom is one of the people that might receive that. And so that was just really, really neat to get to do that and feel like I was somehow possibly serving her, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So um, now while you were living and working in Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, So apart from your family, first of all, is your Russian slash Ukrainian pretty good? You said you had a translator, but it sounds like it's pretty good. (laughs) Yes, I think it's interesting. I think I have been, I did study Russian while I was there because that's what everybody spoke on the street. But when I would go to the schools, there were particular, uh, directors who I think of Valentina in a school 200 who would say to me, I will teach you Ukrainian because your grandparents would want you to know Ukrainian. And so, and they just, every time I came in and if I said it in Russian, she'd go, no, ma'am, you say it in Ukrainian. So yes, I can speak Russian better. I'm learning a little bit of Ukrainian as we've gone back many times. In fact, we were just there in May. Um, but We, um, so yes, but I feel like it's a gift in that when I hit the ground in Ukraine, I start dreaming in Russian. I start thinking in Russian. It's really interesting. Even though you hadn't studied it before? No. Yeah, exactly. Whoa. Wow. So it's a gift. It is definitely a gift. 
Now, how about the Bereniki? Were they almost like a language? Were you able to, did you make that with Ukrainian people? And I did enjoy- get to. My mm-hmm. friend Vera in, in Kiev, who was the, my family, um, I also got to sit with this older woman that I met in the village, my great aunt, her daughter, who is my father's cousin. She would was outside making Vereniki on wow. a little on a little box. They had like a summer kitchen. A lot of their cooking is outside. They don't have indoor water. You know, they don't have any plumbing. And so she was literally sitting out there making Vereniki, which they would say pierohi. They wouldn't say Vereniki. It's amazing to Incredible. see that and get to experience that with her. Incredible. Yeah. So let's talk about the making of them. And I have, I have several questions. So both for your time as, as a child learning from your mother and then Mm -hmm. also in Ukraine. So, Mm -hmm. um, I would tend to think of something like this that is so labor intensive as a communal activity. Like you would gather together to make them. Was that true? Yes. It was there in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Definitely. And my mom would like to have had more help. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And in fact, she tried to include, but I was very much an outdoor girl. So I would see, I mess around for a few minutes and then I was outside. So, so when did you learn? I actually learned, this is so funny. I learned in here living in North Carolina when I was a single girl, I called my mom and said, would you talk me through it? Mm-hmm. And so I was with a friend and, um, we made them together okay. um, with my mom talking us through it. On okay. The phone. I see. Okay. Well now you're going to talk me through it because I made some last night and I okay. took some notes, some questions as I went through. So when you say roll and cut, so I rolled it I rolled them very thin. Like, I'm not going to say you could have read through it, but it was translucent. Is that correct? Um, it probably is not incorrect. Okay. <laughs> ours are, ours are probably a little bit thicker than that. Okay. Well, the I part was... of the reason for that is because we fry them. And oh, because when okay. you don't want them to split, when you put them in the boiling water, yeah. Did I say that? I hope I did. You you did. Yeah. Well, you oh, just okay. talked about it being important to seal them. Not one burst open. That was all okay, fine. Good. And I was surprised by how much the dough kind of puffed up, actually. Uh-huh. Like, I felt like they came out of the boiling water much bigger than I put them in. Yes. <laughs> Does that sound definitely. crazy? No, That's it right. doesn't. That's right. That's okay. right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I just, um, I kind of like did a little ring around the edge with water. And then Mm -hmm. I folded it over and I just pinched, but I didn't like crimp, you know, are they supposed to be crimped? I tried to crimp and they honestly, they looked worse. So I just, I kind of, so I'm pinching while I'm kind of crimping at the same time, if that makes sense. So I'm kind of almost rubbing my thumb over my index mm -hmm. finger. So I'm pinching it down, but then I'm smooshing it too, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And that <laughs> it does. And I, I know what you're saying. And that's what I was trying to do. And they looked horrible. So <laughs> I'll try again. I'll try for the photos and we'll just see. You might just get basic sealed ones and have to. Hey, that's great. Have to forgive me since I'm not Ukrainian. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was really surprised 
they boiled. Um, I mean, I think they floated. I want to say like within a minute, I was very yes. fast how quickly they yes. floated. That's, that's right. Yes. Okay. All right. I think I've got it. I, I have to say I was super intimidated by this recipe, but it, it really wasn't so bad. It really isn't. And it's funny because like when I said roll and cut mm-hmm. in my family, we rolled and cut with a glass. Like you roll it out really That's what thin. I did. Yep. Yeah. And then cut it with a glass. Right. And That's my what mom I did. would put them on a, on a towel that was damp. So she'd okay. cut them all. She'd put them on a damp towel. She'd cover them up. And then she would go to the, then she'd add the filling, right? Yes. But my dad's cousin in Ukraine, they're such masters. When I watch them, I'm just in awe. Mm. I mean, she rolls it into like a snake and cuts it and forms the circle herself, puts it in there and pinches it. And so she's doing it all at the same time. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. And now tell me about one thing that I loved about what you shared with me is what a table setting would look like mm-hmm. when you ate the mm-hmm. uh, Renneke. So can you tell, can you tell me about yes. that? So I still have mine out because we just had Ukrainian Christmas, um, mm-hmm. January 7th. Now why, and, why is it January 7th? Well, um, it's the Julian calendar. They still tend to go by the Julian calendar, calendar over there. So Christmas Eve, which they call Sviet Vietra, uh-huh. is January 6th. And so there's a big feast on January the 6th, and that's 12 dishes that have no meat. Oh. But Christmas Day, you can eat the feast with the meat. <laughs> okay. Uh, because in, in a sense, he's not here yet. See. So Christmas okay. day, he's, he's, you know, he's arrived. So they're famous for their cross stitch. Famous mm. in all of their cross stitch, red and black always with white. And so mm. red represents joy mm. and black represents sorrow. I love how the Ukrainian culture acknowledges sorrow and lamenting. So that would always be on the table. And they would also have what you call a diduch, which is a wheat stalk. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe. In Mm. fact, their flag is Mm -hmm. blue over yellow. Mm -hmm. And that is to represent the blue sky over the golden wheat fields. Mm. And so the diduch is put somewhere on the table to represent the generations that are not with us anymore that have gone. Mm, so it's beautiful. Oh, mm. I love it. It's, I told my husband, my husband knows when I die, you will take my ashes and scatter them out of a plane window all over the village and all over in Ukraine. Cause that's where my heart, mm is Mm -hmm. I'm Ukrainian before I'm an American in some big senses. Wow. And, and, um, that's an incredible statement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think the job you are doing is so important. Mm -hmm. I really do. And I really feel privileged to have gotten to talk to. I feel like I have a new friend. (laughs) I feel the same. I feel the exact same. And I feel so privileged to have this recipe that I get to enjoy it again next week and probably again and again. (laughs) Yes. 
I feel very honored to have been touched and challenged truthfully, Lydia, by your grandfather. I'm going to think about that a lot. Mm -hmm. And what have people in my history done that I have honestly such a cakewalk right now? Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for making me think about that. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Lydia for making me laugh, cry, and challenging me. Thank you all so much for listening. You can find the Vereniki recipe on thestoriedrecipe.com. I'd like to ask you again to subscribe right now to the Storied Recipe podcast. The schedule is filled up until May, and I am brimming over with excitement to share all of these episodes with you. Also, to help sustain this podcast, I'd be deeply appreciative if you will either leave a review or simply reach out to a friend or family member or post on social media about this podcast. You can always find me and lots of behind the scenes shenanigans over on Instagram at the storied recipe podcast. And please reach out anytime as a valued member of this community. Next week, we'll hear from Lauren about Hamantaschen and her way of honoring her mother's memory at Purim. In the meantime, have a great week, my friends.